This presentation was from Yorks Australia 2017, held in Sydney. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit yorksaustralia.com.au. Uh, I'm very pleased to have with us this morning uh, an author and an internationally known speaker on the topic of service design. Please join me in welcoming to the stage this morning, Mr. Andy Pillane. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. We had uh, a wine degustation last night, and I'm a little bit... I can feel it. I can feel it. Um, so, morning. Grab a seat. Come up the front here. If you're sitting on the end and there's a couple of empty seats next to you, feel free to cuddle up next to the people in the middle so that, so that you can uh, allow the latecomers to, to sneak in and not just sort of tumble over the chairs. So I'm going to talk about living design, and I'm going to talk uh, uh, about how we're kind of thinking about doing this and, and are doing this in Fjord. Um, for those of you who don't know, I'm the regional design director for Fjord here in uh, Asia-Pacific. And um, I was talking to Steve the other day, and the, the problem with the work we do is you can, he was saying this, you can talk about the client, but you can't show the work, or you can talk about the work, but you can't mention the client. Um, so I'm going to talk about uh, our approach to this, and I'll try and give some examples, um, but uh, I won't be mentioning any names. I'd like to give, actually, I don't know if anyone else has done this, I'd like to give a massive shout out to the captioners. I find this amazing that they're able to do the, uh, the captioning. So. And it's a, a fantastic service too. A living service indeed. So we've come a long way, right? We've been, uh, we've had, well some of you, depends how old you are. Uh, we had the 90s, the, the web changed everything, changed the way we shop, changed the way we search for stuff. <clears throat> One day, I think October actually, isn't it? Amazon will make its way to Australia and you'll catch up. Um, <laughs> and you'll experience what that's like, what everyone else has been doing for the last 20 years. And then it all went mobile and, and that kind of changed everything again. And it, you added all the location-based stuff. It, it really kind of made it, uh, social media properly explode. Um, and of course, created the whole app store ecosystem, which I hope some of you are you know, flying around in private jets from your, your success with. And then in the, what we're seeing in this uh, current decade is, is living services, this rise of what we call living services. And they, there's two forces that are sort of allowing us to create these. One is all of this stuff. So I probably don't need to tell you too much about this because I imagine it's all very much part of your lives, but the digitization of everything. And that's both in terms of all the devices and nearables and wearables and, and everything else that's being connected. But it's also that how much of our lives become digital. So there's a very nice um, sort of stop-motion animation on YouTube somewhere, on the interwebs somewhere. Um, and it it's shows a desk with, um, from the some 1950s, and it's got a Rolodex and a calendar on the wall and a typewriter and a notepad. And gradually, as the clock sort of goes forward, it all just shrinks down to a, just a, an iPhone, I think. So all, all of those kind of parts of our lives are starting to uh, being digitized, too. So uh, the lowered cost of this um, has just sort of created this perfect storm where all of this is coming together, and, and most of you will know about it. The other part of it is uh, liquid expectation. So 
as you use Amazon.com, as you'll find out, um, or you use Airbnb, or you use Uber, or any of those services, or Google, or any of those things that you're kind of used to being uh, sort of fairly seamless services, your expectations for anything else you use um, transcend those industry boundaries. So if you're a bank, you're not looking at uh, how good is my bank compared to other banks, but why, isn't my, why can't my bank get, it as, you know, get this right if Airbnb can do it? Right. So, so you get this, these expectations about what a good service should be uh, become liquid. And what it means that uh, for different industries, they're in competition not just with each other, but with the highest bar of, of uh, experience. So we talked about being living. Here's me with my nail varnish last night at the drinks. Um, because they, they are sort of adaptive and they're tailored and they, they wrap themselves around our lives and they're, they're sort of proximate and intimate to us too. Right? So they, the, 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 you know, the, the classic one that probably everyone knows is Google Now. So that, that um, you know, you, you're, going to, uh, you're going to be late for that uh, lunch or you better leave now for that lunch with Jerry because um, uh, th there's a lot of traffic. Now, it seems kind of very simple, that, and it, it obviously is, but obviously there aren't, I hope, engineers at Google going, tracking my life and going, so when Andy meets Jerry, we'll kind of work out what the customer journey is for that and, and, and work out all the details. But what is going on is you know, how did they come to that idea? What, how, did they, how did they come to the idea of, of taking those two bits of data and, and colliding them together and then create an experience that's quite unique for me, but it's obviously uh, unique for millions of other people in their own unique ways, too. The sort of next step of that is, you know, that, that restaurant or that cafe that you were going to that Jerry booked is apparently rubbish. <laughs> so, um, and it's actually going to be closed by the time you get there. But there's another one, um, you know, because you're, you're following someone else. I saw Nicole in the audience further. And, she, and she's got great taste in food, and you follow her on whatever, Foursquare. Um, and uh, it's, it's going to be open, so uh, I'll reroute you to there, and um, I'll reroute, as you would say in Australia, sorry. And, um, and you know, book the table, and I'll let everyone know. So, so it sort of starts to take over a lot of those different things. So what these services do is... Um, they, they sort of automate the, many of the small sort of low-maintenance decisions. Right? They, they um, learn and adapt, and they create this kind of... Uh, they learn from your preferences, and they're really starting to create this kind of profile of you. And the main thing is, you know, they're, they're pulling together all of that data individually, but they're obviously, in certain uh, situations, they're using all that crowd data. I mean, Google obviously uses it for traffic, but there's a whole other, a load of other uses of that data in medicine where you might get some individual little pieces of data that actually the, the aggregate um, patterns of those are, are very powerful. Um, and they have the potential for, to make society smarter, and I'll talk about that point later on. Um, but they take things off the thinking list. They're designing them, though, from a sort of data perspective is... is Progressing, right? It, it's as anyone who's got a um, has tried using Siri or OK Google or any of those things, they're not quite there yet. But the actual sort of user experience of those is a lot of it's quite unexplored. And how you kind of think about how do you construct these kinds of services? 
So we've created a template, and I'm going to talk about that now. There's the composition of them, it has things, some bits that you probably know and some bits that you may suspect. Um, the North Star, a rule book, a uh, set of triggers, a set of micro moments, and an atomized profile. So how they work together is the North Star you're, is the thing that you may well have kind of seen uh, and been involved in creating or helping organizations and clients create which is basically, you know, it's your mission. But it's your mission for, for um, your customers' lives. And um, I don't know if anyone's read, uh, I don't know how you pronounce his surname, Umir Hack. Umir Hake Hack. There's a book called Betterness, anyway, by him. It's very good. Uh, and he talks about sort of uh, mission statements from, from uh, corporations, and he gives some very good, bad examples of them. Those North Star things should really be about you know, the external. How do you make uh, your, your customers' lives better? Right? So it's from their point of view, and I'm preaching to the converted with a room full of UXs here. You'd be surprised how often that isn't the case. Right? How often it's, our mission is to make more money for shareholders and increase shareholder value and you know, um, make our technology the dominant one. There's a hotel chain, which is... Um, it's, I don't think it is the Hilton, but it is, its sort of mission statement is to be the sort of the, the number one hospitality kind of uh, um, something or other. And it's a bit of a like, well, yeah. But the best mission statements are things like we're, we're here to help people um, live the best lives they can or to live the most healthy lives they can or something that's actually external to the, the organization. How do you make the world a better place or how do you improve people's lives? And so that's the overarching ambition, and you'll, you'll recognize the sort of as a customer I want to thing from those kind of uh, from user stories and epics and all of those kinds of things. Right? So that bit is pretty clear. The rule book determines how the, the triggers in your service um, respond, or uh, what triggers in your, what things in your customer's life uh, trigger some kind of response. And it's that classic if then, if this then that kind of structure. So the, the, the question is, and the, the sort of tricky bit is, how does it respond uh, in millions of unpredictable scenarios? Um, so not just when I'm having lunch with Jerry, but you know, when I'm having drinks with Nicole. So in order to do this, you need to uh, capture. Right? So you need to capture lots of data. And you need to think about how your service is going to capture that data and think about how um, existing and new information uh, is needed. And so one of the things that happens with data is it becomes a, a sort of, it's not really a medium, actually. It's a sort of design element. If you think of the classics of Bauhausian design elements of, of kind of form and balance and hierarchy and color and all those things, then data becomes a thing to think about designing with. And you know, if I had access to any data, what would I do with it? How would I make this amazing? And then you'll probably scare the pants off yourself about, well, if I had access to all of that data, that would kind of be a bit creepy. How does it then learn, right? So how does it continually change and, and live? So how does it make modifications on what it's learning and from that data? And how's it sort of, how does the rule book get updated, basically? Because if you have a kind of fixed rule book, you get into the computer says no scenario. And then how does it decide? And the way it decides what rules to take um, are based around the context, which I come to. But that value 
and that North Star is really, really important because that ends up what drives decisions. Right? Should we do this thing or should we do that thing? So we should, so I suggest this restaurant or this one that's more sustainable um, or this one that you know, is a terrible place. So those triggers, um, as they go through their kind of everyday, a customer goes through their everyday, um, they're going to have lots of kind of triggers. And there's lots of things and circumstances that they can respond to. So they're, they're, they're triggered, uh, they're corresponding to the little micro moments. So these two things come together very well. And this is the thing I wish I could tell you about. I can tell you that it's, um, I don't know if I can even tell you the industry. Um, but it's a thing that uh, all of us have in our lives in Australia. Uh, and it's a, a thing that, um, it's, it's about health. I say that. I'll probably get fired now. Um, but, you know, so, so that's really kind of looking, because healthcare is an interesting space, right? Because you've got lots of data um, coming in. You've, all of us, well, not all of us, some of us are not very healthy, but I still track my lack of health on my watch. And you're getting this, uh, this data, but what's really interesting about that is one of those things you can do, what you can do with the large uh, amount of data. And I'm struggling not to say big data, because I, I really don't, I've, I've, you can fill in your bingo card now, big data, <laughs> said it. Um, but, you know, the, the aggregate data, you get patterns that you might not see and they might not turn up. There's a project we've done called Fjord Fido, and it's looking at, um, it's looking at uh, a, trying to design a better interface for um, insulin pumps, basically, for, for people with um, diabetes. And one of the things about that is, you know, you, you track a lot of personal data. So you track the, you know, if, if, you're, if you know you're going to eat something, um, have a big meal later on in the day, or you're going to cycle to school, or any of those things, they, they make a big difference to that process. So, so understanding and learning from your behavior helps, helps um, dose the insulin better. But thousands or millions of people doing it also show up patterns around diabetes that were probably hidden. And that's the really kind of powerful part of that. So the micro moments um, really need to sort of, this is this kind of if X happens, then we respond with Y. And there's a sort of suite of experiences that you're going to have. Now, some of those are designed, right? I mean, and some of those are going to kind of be Lego blocks, basically, that are designing so that they can fit together in any, in any different way and still be kind of delightful. So each one is a delightful experience in its own right, and that's where all these little kind of micro moments come from. If, has anyone read, I don't know if anyone's read Dan Saffer's Micro Interactions, and it's a great, get a few hands went up. Everyone else go and buy it. Dan Saffer, you owe me a beer. Um, it's really good, and it talk, just talks about all the little micro moments of interaction. Is anyone a, uh, a content strategist here, or a content designer? Someone who writes, a UX writer is the other name for this. Okay. Go and retrain. This is a job that's going to be hugely in demand, I think, quite soon. But micro copy, so the, the tiny bits of copy, you see it sometimes really well done in, in certain apps. Um, it, it's, that stuff starts to make a real difference. And I was thinking about this the other day. I was thinking about kind of, I was thinking about life. That sounds very, I was, I was sitting in a tree thinking about life. And um, I was thinking, when you think of all the kind of important things in your life, the things that actually really impact you, you don't really think of the kind of big sort of whole complete story. You think of little fleeting moments. You think of the smile on someone's face. Um, you know, you think of someone waving goodbye to you on a train. You think you have all of these things that actually really 
all the sort of micro moments actually make the difference. Ash Donaldson gave a really nice talk last year here, uh, well, in Melbourne, um, called the, the details are not the details, talking about that um, Ray and Charles Eames phrase, if the details aren't the details, the details are the product. And actually, it's all the micro moments that make up the, the sort of delightful experience. It's not just the kind of the big things. So those work with um, triggers. And so you have a, um, a trigger that something happens in someone's life. So a sensor or something is going on there. It's tracking location, or you see my heart rate changes, or there's two bits of information, like the Google Now thing, where it's looking at my calendar. It's probably looking at my email, looking at my underpants. It's looking at my um, uh, travel itinerary. And it's calculating that, you know, you need to change your underpants before you have lunch with Jerry. This is going in a very weird place now. And I, that <laughs> Serves you right for sitting in the front. So those then get offered up based on what's in the rule book. So that's the sequence, right? And you, you sequentially have this set of kind of raising the service, uh, service expectations. So there's these kind of three loops that you can think about in this, and th this is going to end up in a kind of gnarly diagram that you won't be able to read at the back, but I'm going to talk through it instead. The first one, if you think about um, being present, I like to think of this as the, sort of the perfect wine waiter. Um, so someone who seems to be not around, and then just as you finish your wine, kind of comes over and would you like some more, so, and, and then you can decide as opposed to someone just constantly walking past and topping up your glass, right? Or, and just kind of annoyingly in the way. Um, or, as they seem to do a lot in Australia, actually, just come and clear your plates away whilst the other people are still eating, and you're like, no, leave it alone. So the sort of perfect way to so sort of humble and present, right, at the same time. And most of this is about taking things off the, the thinking list. So um, examples of this. Things like you know, your bank letting, letting you know so you can afford the uh, television you're looking at right now. Or, or the Nest thing, right? Your home is adjusting um, its temperature based on when it knows you, you normally arrive home and all those kinds of things, right? So you're not really having to kind of think about those uh, low-maintenance decisions. Now, on the one hand, this feels like that we're incredibly lazy and spoiled, which is true. But on the other hand, uh, who has... Uh, who does that thing where you, you just don't bother to kind of clear email, and so your red badge on your, on your mail is like 50,000 or something? God, that's an alarming number of people. That stuff just kind of tickles my brainstem like really badly, and I look at my phone, I've got all those little red badges, and I'm like, oh, God. So we've got all these apps and services that are, uh, are making this, our lives uh, amazing, and then we have to tend to them. They're like these little kind of bleating children or the little kind of birds going, meep, 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 feed me, feed me. And um, so taking some of that stuff away, I hope we're in a transition period of that rather than this just going to get worse. So what we believe is that some of these things will help take some of those things away as we kind of become more and more, living in a more and more complex world. Then there's a kind of timeless loop, which is how, how can you sort of collect data from... Um, from people's lives and what's going on in their lives in a meaningful and trustworthy way. That's the, and that's a really crucial part. How, how can it... So in the Google example, again, 
you know, I might go, oh, that's actually quite useful because now I, I, I'm not going to be late for that thing or um, that's quite useful because now I've got an excuse to say no to the lunch and let, and let Jerry just sit there on his own. I'll give, you, I'll give Google a bit more of that data. I'll give you a bit more access to that. Or I'll give Apple it. And so that North Star starts to become really important because who you give that data to and how you kind of have that relationship. Now, one of the pieces of work that uh, we've been doing, I actually also can't talk about, but I can talk about the, the scenario of it is that um, it pulls together lots of data from different sources to make your life easier when interacting with, with kind of a, a kind of annoying bureau, bureaucratic process. And... In the testing of that, what was really interesting is that people were, we, we kind of thought people might be a little bit um, suspicious and not, uh, and not want to do it. And actually, they were saying, no, it's okay. Uh, I don't mind you using that data. I don't mind you connecting into this other third party and pulling that data down because I can see that it's going to make my life better. It's going to pre-fill all of this stuff that I don't have to do. But I want you to tell me every time you do it. So when I come back later, or later on in the process, there's some, um, you're using that data again, tell me that that's where that's come from. And not only that, give me the option after a certain amount of time to re-give you permission. I give you permission once doesn't mean to say I give you permission forever. You know, it's like saying otherwise, um, when someone's, you're, you're working and you've got your door closed and, and someone knocks on your door and you go, yeah, come in, as if having said that once means they can just barge in on you any time they like. Uh, and so that, that kind of understanding of how, how the data can um, be given permission or how the, you give permission for, for data and what the kind of relationship you're building is really important. So in the timeless loop, um, you're also going to start kind of connecting to other partnerships and ideally seamlessly. So in some of those things, you know, you're... Your bank might, but this is where you get into the proactive stuff. Your bank might tell you, based on your spending trajectory at the moment, um, you're, you're going to need an overdraft, right? Or you're a week away from going into your overdraft. Now, instead of just getting there and finding you, it'd be better that the bank has already prepared the overdraft for you so that you, you, you go into it. But, you know, it gives you, then we have to think as designers, well, what are the right kind of notifications about that? Or what points in the process do we have that conversation? Or, you know, a supermarket might um, uh, look at the food you're shopping whilst you're shopping online and give you suggestions, uh, you know, or your, the app might give you suggestions, but based on the diet that your doctor asked, uh, told you to follow yesterday, because your doctor's data is also being pulled in. Or, you know, on your mobile, you might have, uh, it might be pre-downloading content that it knows you use regularly, so when you're offline... Uh, you've got Game of Thrones just ready to go. Because I still have my German iTunes store account, I used to live in Germany, I'm on episode four or five. Does anyone want me to tell you how it, how it works? No? Okay. <clears throat> so you then get the sort of be magical loop. And this is the bit that's going kind to... Of, um, where you're looking to sort of really raise the bar of the service. So you're looking to, you know, how would you make your service more luxurious? For those of you who are in my workshop, this is the Julia Roberts experience. For anyone else, ask, you have to just ask about that later. How would Julia Roberts experience this? There's a whole backstory to this. But, you know. um, so how can you extend your service into other industries? And some of those things, like, so... Um, 
you know, after booking your flights for your holiday, your bank starts saving for the next holiday and starts rounding the change on your uh, transactions or maybe on your credit card. Or your doctor, um, your health service is connected to your calendar, right? So you, you, the doctor knows you've got an up, up, upcoming holidays and has already kind of booked you an appointment uh, and the correct inoculations for you and vaccinations for you and those kinds of things. So you're getting these kind of connections between all those services. And then they start to kind of wrap around you in this. This is the big uh, gnarly diagram um, where you have these triggers... I'm going to use a laser. I always like using a laser. So you have these triggers um, that then look into the rule book, and then you go work out kind of where you are in this loop. And I'm going to talk about the Atomos profile in, in a second, because that becomes very important. Um, but basically, you then present these little micro moments, uh, and that's how you create that unique experience. So what do we need to know about the customer? And uh, this, two, this sort of atomization goes two ways. So that atomized profile is sort of this ever-changing dynamic profile, right? You've got all of these different um, pieces of data from different services that you're trying to pull together, and it's, it's making patterns and connections. Now, in some things, those could be very, very useful. You can imagine, I saw, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the things that, you know, say in government the effort there to where you constantly kind of have a new interaction with government every time. Hello, Lisa. Um, whereas, in fact, what you want is, in, well, if you've kind of onboarded me once, you know all of this about me. If anyone uh, uh, um, works in a large organization, and you, you'll know this, right? You, the, the amount of times you're having to give the same data in over and over again and how annoying that is. So, so you want to kind of pull all these different sources together, and you get this incredible profile of people and that you really understand their world and their behavior and their, uh, their needs. <clears throat> and so, like a kind of good, a good butler, or like a kind of any good service, if you think of, sort of Downton Abbey, it's, predict it's predicting kind of where you're going to go, and it's, it's, it's there before you, you need it. It also might uh, see patterns in your behavior that you don't see yourself, um, and it's going to try and sort of nudge you into a better place. A bit like a kind of therapist, right, who's having conversations. And you can see the living service saying, does that remind you of your father at all? And you go, oh, no. <laughs> so the kind of stuff that we're working on at the moment is looking at, uh, we've done a lot of work on the North Star and the experiential stuff and the design principles, because they really, really are important. Without that, it's very, very hard to do anything that's not creepy with the data. Right, you actually really have to have a sense of, uh, you know, and that usually comes from doing all the stuff you'll know, all the kind of ethnographic research, the, the, the deep kind of uh, insights research of really understanding people's lives and their needs and their behaviors and actually what they want, rather than just shoving stuff down people's throats. That helps then define the rule book, which is because that's about a set of kind of behaviors and principles, and we do this and we don't do that, you know, and... I'll talk about it in a second, but you know, different companies have different views about what you do with data, as I'm, as I'm sure you know. And that defines kind of their services. We spend quite a lot of time, and most of you in this room have spent quite a lot of time uh, working on the micro moments of what are the little sort of beautiful interactions and experiences. Um, the bit that is 
needs work and needs designing is that, where those two come together. So how, do the, how does the sort of experiential stuff that we know, where we might have defined it quite clearly as a kind of pathway in the past, how do we connect that to something that's a kind of living and learning system um, so that it's not just a kind of technology-driven thing, but it's actually experientially driven? And so that's, uh, that's the idea of those, sort of how it all comes together with those new, uh, unique experiences. So that's the kind of, that's the template for that. Why really, really, we're still working on, on projects that are doing this at the moment, and we're learning so much about it, and we're learning so much about different contexts. Um, you know, the context of people in a certain time, you know, that's what makes a un unique experience, but we're learning a lot about um, where the permission is. So how do you, how do you gain... Not how do you gain trust, because that sounds bad, but how do you actually build trust? How do you build a relationship? And what kinds of little interactions uh, make a difference? And that's why I was talking about content design and, and writing, because those the words that you use are incredibly important. You know, um, the way you have a conversation with, with a, a customer are in, in really in, in, enormously important to kind of building up that trust. And it only takes kind of one little thing to happen, and you've, you've blown it. So here I am, I'm, you know, uncle service design dancing at the UX wedding reception, and why should you care as a bunch of UXs? These things could be wonderful living services that sort of really do kind of wrap around our lives and respond and are incredibly useful. It could also be very useful for society <clears throat> and make society smarter. The, there's the potential for them to be a living hell as well, though, if you get them wrong. At the moment, these different companies have different sets of ethics uh, around the way they think about data, about who owns that data. They have different North Stars, different rules, and you can, and you can see how that's kind of driving the kind of interactions with them. The brains behind them, the, 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 the data sets and the kind of learning behind them becoming ever more powerful at the same time as the interfaces to them are, uh, are actually reducing massively. So the Amazon Echo, the Google Home, and Apple's um, HomePod, they're just, you know, they're cylinders, bleeping cylinders with a, a lady in a can, as someone talks about Alexa. Um, they're bleeping cylinders with blinking lights on. As if that's ever going to catch on. <laughs> so the point with that is that if you would kind of increase the amount of stuff that's invisible and, and, kind of, and, and then reduce the visible stuff even further, it starts to become very, very difficult to know what's the kind of relationship I'm building. So how do you design for that invisible UI? Right. That's the real question. I, I, an annoying, whistling, wheelie bin... Would I'd be throwing R2D2 off of that spaceship pretty quickly? I know. And you know, in the storytelling of Star Wars, they do the kind of Skippy the Kangaroo and Lassie thing, which is they say, "What's that R2D2? Someone's stuck in the old mine, and we have to go and rescue them." But actually, uh, my favourite droid uh, from Star Wars is um, K2SO, and um, he's. I like him because he's, he's got personality, right? And he has kind of behavior. And, you know, C-3PO, bless him, had kind of personality of a sort of, you know, Woody Allen kind of personality, I guess. 
But what, there's a bit, I think if you haven't seen this, it, Rogue One, there's a bit in it, though, where he, he's, he basically, he's, um, he just can't stop being kind of direct. He just kind of tells the, what he thinks straight away. There's not much filter. And uh, one of the characters says, yeah, I'm sorry, it's something to do with his reprogramming. And I like to kind of think of that in terms of, of the sort of living services and what we do. That when you think about um, behavior uh, and personality, then if, if you know, if... You've probably heard this thing of AI is the new UI, right? but that means that personality is the new UX. Because what personality is, is a set of values, it's a set of behaviors, um, expressions of that behavior, it's the way you dress, it's the way you talk, it's the way you interact with people. That's what really uh, is the expression of our personality. So really defining that personality up front, and that's everything from that, that that's the rule book, right? I do this when someone gets you know, angry with me. I shout back or I walk away. You know. I, um, I'm, I'm like this when I interact with this person. I'm slightly like that when I interact, uh, slightly different when I inter interact with this person, but I'm still Andy Palane. So really understanding what your personality is and what the personality is of the organization and the service is what drives everything else. So that's why you know, content design and strategy are really important. Right? Thinking about how do we talk to people. It's why Google have hired um, comedy writers to write some of the, the, the scripts for um, Google Home. So Beiju, who's one of the um, part of Fjord's leadership in the States, his, his son, he bought his son a, uh, well, Father Christmas, sorry, gave his son a Google Home uh, for Christmas. <coughs> And um, he was sat with it, kind of playing with it, and he said, Google, okay, Google, uh, can you fart? And the Google Home said, no, but you can blame me for it if you want to. <laughs> he, uh, he went on holiday with his, his kids, with his family, and it's of unpacking his kid's suitcase, and, and it's like the Google Home was in the suitcase. And he said, why have you brought this with you? And he said, well, we couldn't leave it alone on its, on its own at home. <laughs> Which is amazing, right? So for, for Beiju, who's, who's the father, he, you know, Google is a search engine, right? For um, his kid, Google is now this kind of, this being that knows everything. Right? It's a completely different kind of mental model, a completely different, different relationship. And just some of those little kind of interactions is what kind of create that relationship. But there's a, a thing that comes with that. So as we start to humanize those services, and as we start to create things that feel like the human interactions, even when they're not, and this goes for chatbots, this goes for um, you know, uh, some of the copy in your uh, apps and websites and everything, but it also goes for, it's really true of services that we talk about living services. Well, you're kind of tricking me, in a way, into having a human interaction. And sometimes I, I want that, and I want it to feel, because we don't want the computer says no thing. You want to have a kind of a, a reasonable human interaction with something. But when we have interactions with other human beings, there's an implied social contract. Right? So I, you behave in a certain way with other human beings. There's just things you do and things you don't do. They're all part of our upbringing, all part of the culture you, you grew up in, and all of that. You know? They're you know, you don't put bird seed on your hand and let a bird come and kind of eat off it and then just kind of crush its head, right? You just, that, that would be a bad thing to do. 
play. You, you don't, do you do that? You do. Okay, well, apart from you. See me later. Um, but the, you know, the, I nearly made the kind of dad joke of sort of don't bite the hand that feeds you, right? But it really is that thing of, you know, if you're going to set up that relationship, well, then don't kind of start to abuse it. And I think one of the things that is really important about that is transparency, but it's also really, really important for designers to be involved in this because it is just too important. So, so important to be left to technologist bias, right? And that's a kind of bunch of data sets that are... Um, Often old data sets and out, out of date. I don't know if anyone knows how many people know this. is really, really kind of pretty famous now. Uh, and he tweeted this to Google, and Google immediately kind of changed it. And, but the, the response to, uh, that Google did was, we just won't tag gorillas at all. Right? So his, he and his friend, African-Americans, were tagged on Google Photos by their machine learning as gorillas. Now, the question is not, you know, how did that happen? Because he, kind of, he understood the guy is a, um, a developer, actually. So he kind of understood how it happened technically, but he was like, how did you not think at some point, this is a thing, this is an eventuality that we should kind of think about right, on, a, on a human level? And there are obviously hundreds, thousands of these things, but that's why it's important. Um, so my, my sort of plea to you, is twofold. One is let's make some amazing living services that kind of create, uh, that really kind of improve people's lives and are an amazing experiences in ways that those kind of annoying little red badges on your phone aren't. But at the same time, um, it's really, really important to, for designers to be involved in this part of the process and really get their heads around what's going on with the, the sort of the backstage of this, what's going on in the process. And that should really, really be part of that process, not just kind of painting the, the front of it and, and letting the kind of the data scientists and the data and analytics folks work on that stuff without the, the human and user experience input. Because I think it's always a very good thing to um, recommend other people's work. If anyone hasn't read uh, Josh Clark's uh, essay, really. I think he did it as a, as a talk, but he wrote it. It's very, very good, and, and quite a lot of his other stuff is very good. Um, but this is really good. Design in the age of the algorithm. Um, it's a fantastic kind of plea of how do you combine your UX skills, and how do you use those to actually look at and, and present the visible side of, of what's going on in some of those algorithms. Because they do come back with certain weightings. They do come back with things that like, I think this is a uh, there's an example in this essay where uh, a, there's a dinosaur and it's standing on like a kind of, um, it's an illustration of a dinosaur and it's standing on like a kind of measuring <coughs> bar and it's part of the illustration to show how long it is. And it says, uh, the algorithm says dinosaur standing on a surfboard. And it's like, but that's just kind of rubbish, right? That you, you know, yes, yes, you look into the API and it says, well, it's only... I'm, you know, 80% sure this is a dinosaur, but I'm only 20% sure this is a surfboard. So why not tell people about that? And he, he talks about the kind of different ways of um, using UX to actually present the information that's currently being hidden in that data uh, because of the sort of one true answer problem of Google where it just chooses the first one and then presents it as if that's fact instead of, as he says, you know, choose accuracy over speed, which is a pretty good mantra for life. Thank you.
Thanks, Andy. Uh, we have time for a few questions. Anyone have a question for uh, besides Adrian? No. <laughs> um, Andy, uh, sorry, that's a go-ahead? Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Um, Andy, thanks so much for the talk. Um, okay. uh, you've drawn a lot of inspiration from the things you've shared yeah. um, in the material, but can you share any observations perhaps that maybe go into the material without disclosing yeah. you um, around the managing for the secondary and unintended impacts of mm. atomized profiles, aggregated data and uh, algorithmic refinement? I just swallowed a bit of ice. Sorry. Uh, yeah, so uh, we've been talking quite a lot about unintended consequences. Um, as, uh, we have these kind of trends report that we do every year, and, and one of them is that. And um, because it's clear that... Uh, I, I think the answer to it is to uh, make sure that is part of the conversation from the get-go. There's a kind of... Um, inherent paradox in unintended consequences that's quite hard to intend them in the first place, right? Because they're, they're unintended. So I think it's really important, same as that Google example, it's really important to be having that conversation about what could this, where could this go wrong? I read a blog post, I can't remember who did it. He said, you should always have a jerk persona. Because um, he, he went up to someone's iPhone and, uh, in the very early days and, and he just pressed on Siri and he just went, change my name to dickhead. And it did. And he said, that shouldn't happen, right? <laughs> so it changed his contact name to this guy's contact name to Dickhead. Uh, to actually, and one of the things I always try and do is kind of break it and be the evil person. Think, how, would I, how could I use this in a really evil, bad way? Um, because often that conversation's not, it's not there. I mean, I've been in so many meetings where the conversation's all about how people are going to brilliantly use this thing. You know, and then you go, what about if people did do this? And everyone's like, oh, no, but people wouldn't do that. But, but, you know, but they do. And machines do it too, right? So I think um, to try and think through the worst-case scenario is a good place to start because usually these sort of unintended consequences are somewhere in between. And then that stuff has to kind of feed into the rule book. And that comes back to that set of principles about, well, in that case, accuracy over, over speed or if we're not that sure, and particularly in these cases where it could be deeply offensive, Let's not do it instead. I don't know if that, that helps. And we have time for one more question. Thanks, Andy. Um, I, f I feel like a lot of those uh, unintended consequences or the, the terrible Google example yeah. come from like, homogenized teams of you know, the same white male engineers yeah. building algorithms. Um, and I feel like there's, there's that same, what, a much worse scenario if, we're not being inclusive yes. like as a fundamental principle. And what are your thoughts on that? My thoughts are I completely agree. I mean, I think that the, the, it screams out why diversity is important. It screams out why inclusive design is so important. Um, and it screams out why, as a team of people building these things, you absolutely have to... But so in, in, you know, in ethnography, you can't ever... It's sort of understood that you can never get rid of your bias, right? But you can be very aware of it. And I think that that's the, the difference. If, it, if you think that, you know, we have no bias, then you've, you're completely wrong. So you really have to, like, start out thinking, what is our bias here? And how might we correct it? How might we bring different points of view in? How might we be testing this with people who are completely different from what we think are from us, but also completely different from what we think our end users might be and so forth? Um, very, very early on to try and course-correct that as early as possible. And it's some of the stuff that um, we've been doing recently for uh, a public service. 
has been uh, has been around that of really trying to and it's it's massively driven the the UX actually in in kind of different directions and it's been incredibly enlightening for the team actually to do that. Um, so yeah, in, inclusive design from the get go is really helps kind of already start start thinking that way. Thank you, Andy. Thanks. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from UX Australia 2017. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.